today on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. So a lot of things, but I feel that it really is, it's too bad. It's a disadvantage not to have melatonin supplements available in other countries because of all of its many uses. I call it the ultimate multitasker. And I think if more people just knew of these different functions, then they would see its use, again, beyond sleep. But I think that the fact that children and its whole connection to gummies and chewables, this has given it a little bit of a negative reputation. Yeah. And this is one area where I don't think that melatonin supplements should be used unless there's a good reason. Does that child have ADHD, autism? Are there certain indications for which that melatonin supplement would be indicated? But otherwise, the highest levels of melatonin that you're ever going to see in your life or when you're a child. So I just don't see a reason to give children these gummies, these chewables. And perhaps that's where a lot of the issue has come in. Hello, hello. I'm your host for today, Dr. Carrie Jones, and I am so excited to talk with my friend, colleague, and phytonutrient expert, Dr. Deanna Minnick, all about melatonin. Her brilliance as a nutrition scientist, international lecturer, teacher, and author has over 20 years of experience in academia and in the food and dietary supplement industries. She's the chief science officer at Symphony Natural Health and recently published a paper entitled, Is Melatonin the Next Vitamin D? We dove right in to answer all your questions, including where is melatonin made? How much do we make? What does it do? And most importantly, if we take it, will that suppress our own production? Before we get started, though, I want to talk to you about something that comes up pretty often on this podcast, and that, of course, are supplements like melatonin. There are a lot of confused people out there talking about supplements, and of course, you only want to take the best quality that uses top-tier certified manufacturers. Most importantly, do third-party independent testing to make sure what's on the label is in the capsule. That's why I've teamed up with New Ethics Formulation as their chief medical officer. The team already had a strong history in the supplement world and started the company to really focus on bettering your health and supporting your physique or performance goals. I'm excited to help them continue to focus on the endocrine system and hormones as it relates to glucose, thyroid, estrogen, and even your sleep. Right now, you can get 20% off one order using code drjones20 at newethics.com. That's drjones20 at newethics.com today. Now, let's get on with the show. Deanna Minnick, welcome to the Root Cause Medicine podcast. I am so excited to have you on today because we're talking about my favorite hormone and antioxidant, melatonin. And I can't wait. Yes. Oh, I can't wait either. So you take melatonin. I do. I do. Yes. Yeah. So I take it, especially when I travel, obviously, to help me change time zones. And lately, I have been taking it about 0.3 milligrams at night and noticing it is significantly helping my sleep. Surprise. (laughs) Especially with stress. Or I was sick last week. I had the flu last week. And I just, I know it's, one, sleep is important, but two, I know it's other properties, which we're going to talk about. And so, yeah, I do. And in fact, there are seven different functions that we can talk about as it relates to melatonin. I can't wait because people have a lot of questions. They have a lot of fear. They're concerned about addiction or taking melatonin and shutting down their own. There's a lot of misinformation out there on melatonin that gets 
perpetuated. And I'm glad to have you on here to myth bust today. (laughs) It's been my bedtime reading for some months. And you and I were talking before we jumped on about some of the giants in this field, like Dr. Russell Ryder. We have put together a review article on melatonin, hence this discussion. We published a pretty extensive review article on melatonin as the next vitamin D in the Nutrients Journal. And as we were putting that together, the whole team and I just looking at all of the research from Dr. Ryder, it's amazing. And it has spanned through different body systems, what he's been publishing on. I definitely want to get into that. Why melatonin? How do we go beyond sleep with melatonin? Because most people just think of it for sleep, but it's so much more. Sleep is like a little piece of what melatonin can help us with potentially. And that's a big potentially. Can help us to get to sleep, but won't necessarily make us stay asleep. So there is a lot of nuance there. And before we get started, for those who don't know who you are, but you should, she is a queen in our industry. Why don't you give everybody a little background into how you got started, how you pivoted into melatonin, and then we'll get going. Thanks, Carrie. For a long time, my graduate work is in plants. It's in carotenoids. And I've always been a lover of plants. And being in nutrition science, there's always a lot of arm wrestling about what it's true, what's not. So many people say so many different things. And that was a little bit annoying for me because if I look at the science, I could cherry pick articles to support my position on either side of the fence for so many things. One of the things that I found that you couldn't effectively arm wrestle was that of phytonutrients, looking at the whole composite of different plant compounds and what they were doing at the cellular level, clinical trials, you look at epidemiological studies. I basically got married to this whole platform, phytonutrients. After I finished my graduate, my PhD work, I went on to work in the food industry. So I worked for three years in a Fortune 100 food manufacturer company which was interesting because you get to know the behind the scenes of how do food companies think. And that was great training. And then I went to work with Dr. Jeff Bland at Metagenics. That was back in 2003. I worked with him for 10 years. So I created formulated products. I saw people in the Functional Medicine Research Center. So we did case studies. We did clinical trials. I saw patients. I had that kind of therapeutic encounter with people and looking at how supplements, lifestyle would effectively change their, whatever we were looking at specifically. And one of the things that Dr. Bland really brought to the forefront for me was the interface between plants and metabolic detoxification. As we both know, Dr. Bland was one of the pioneers in this whole area of liver detoxification. Back in the mid-90s, he was publishing articles. What Jeff had brought forward within R&D team is the science of that, to codify that a bit more so that we can understand how phytonutrients were important for that whole process. What got me into melatonin, fast forward now years later, I went out on my own. I got into what I call food and spirit, which is looking at the psychological aspects as well as the physiological aspects. Because one of the things that I would notice when I would be doing a nutritional detoxification with clients is that there would be an upheaval. It wasn't just a food detox. When you were doing a detoxification program, you were essentially doing a life detoxification. You were looking at your relationships. You were looking at your emotions, your thoughts, your bedding, your home. I just started to realize that there's a bigger picture here. As we were going through the pandemic, my life changed. I wasn't doing as much traveling. I wrote a paper on different therapies for COVID-19, and I did that together with Patrick Hannaway. I was noticing that there were some of the steady eddies like zinc, vitamin C, vitamin D that were being talked about quercetin, but then there was a lot on melatonin. 
So that was my first eye-opening experience. The second piece of that brought me to where we are today is I began working with Symphony Natural Health, which is a company that has very specific therapeutic products, all plant-based that all focus on hormones, your specialty. Yeah. Got to know about their herbatonin, which is a plant melatonin, and just dove into the science to try to understand what is melatonin exactly. I'm a little bit of a newcomer to this as well. And that's why standing on the shoulders of giants like Dr. Ryder, Dr. Tan, oh goodness, there are so many people, Dr. Richard Wortman at MIT, so many people have published extensively in this area. So I'm just saying I'm more of a newbie, but I've been in the trenches. It's my light bedtime reading. It's what I've been presenting (laughs) on for about nine months. So I'm all about it. And like you, I take it. So I always feel like that's the true sign of whether or not like you're really into something. Are you actually doing what you're researching? And for me, like within all of that, definitely that has become part of my own lifestyle. Along with so many other things. It was so many other things. And what's interesting, we're going to get into the who, what, where, when, why, and how melatonin, but it's interesting with COVID-19. I got COVID after a conference in 2021 and I was taking melatonin three times a day. And my friends were like, why are you taking so much melatonin? Like, why are you doing, like, you should take it at night. And I said, well, it's a super powerful antioxidant. And yes. some of the data out there on just viral work in general, melatonin could be really helpful. I said, so I'm just going to swallow anything that'll help my immune system and kick this and knock on wood. I didn't have any negative fallout from melatonin or from COVID, but that really helped to sort of open my eyes as I continue to study like you on the wide breadth of things that melatonin does in the body beyond just made at night in the dark sleep support. And I like to say that there are many different types of melatonin produced in the body. There's the pineal form of melatonin, then there's the extra pineal form of melatonin. So the melatonin produced everywhere else in the body. (laughs) Yeah, actually, let's start there. Everyone understandably Majority of people listening right now probably think melatonin is made in the pineal gland in the brain, when in fact, as you just said, it's the everywhere else that's actually... It's everywhere. And in fact, let's just look at the name melatonin. When it was first discovered in 1958 by a dermatologist at Yale, it was found because he was looking at trying to see whether or not it could be a skin lightening agent. It was something that was extracted from the pineal gland of animals at the time. And so his focus was on skin. And initially he thought that this substance was effective in skin whitening. It didn't turn out that way, but the mela refers to the melanin and then the tonin because the structure resembled serotonin. So that's how it got its more, I would say, colloquial scientific name of melatonin. But when you look at it, it's an indolamine. So it's a very specific molecule structure. It's found throughout nature. It's found in plants. So it's in the foods that we're eating. It's in animals. It's in our bodies. And our bodies can actually make it. In terms of the different body systems, we think of the pineal gland as the major generator of melatonin, especially at night. And it's helping with the circadian rhythm. That's one of the functions of melatonin. It's a chronobiotic, meaning that it sets our chronobiology, our circadian rhythm. So that's important. And the amounts that are produced by the pineal gland, however, 
are actually much less in quantity than something like the gastrointestinal system, which is really interesting because the gut produces something on the order of 100 to 400 times that of what we get from the pineal gland. So we see it in the smooth muscle cells. We see it in the gut lumen. So it seems to have a different role in the gut than it does when it's coming from the pineal gland. And in fact, just from hormone physiology, just looking at the different effects, when we think of the pineal gland, that's more of an endocrine effect. So it's signaling from the pineal gland to the rest of the body. It's going system-wide. But as it turns out, when it's produced in the gut, it seems to be having an autocrine and or a paracrine effect. So it's having more of a localized effect there in the gut. Mm -hmm. And perhaps that's due to, it could have some role with appetite. It could have some role with digestive capacity and assimilation. We see that it also may have some role with blood sugar balance and metabolism. Because one of the organelles that is within the cell that is highest in melatonin is the mitochondria. So if we know that the mitochondria is high in it, then we would assume that there's some role in metabolic health. There are different forms of melatonin. We find it in body fluids. We find it in breast milk. We find it in the eye. Probably there are very few parts of the body where we don't find melatonin. When we are first born, we are also taking in some of the maternal melatonin if the baby is breastfed. So we start to produce melatonin from three months on, and then that escalates to about one year. And then from the start of puberty, it starts to decrease. So then there's that kind of rolling hill, that kind of downward slide of melatonin. And then we find ourselves in our, I would say, our mid-50s, and we're in melatonopause, as has been referred to by Dr. Dickon Weatherby, which I really love because it so syncs up with the decline of many other hormones. First of all, I love Dr. Dickon Weatherby. I've been following him for two decades now, so that's amazing. Melatonopause. He coined the term. He did say I can use it, but he's right because as he and I were talking on his podcast, Deanna, it sounds like what's happening here is that people go through melatonopause because as they come down from puberty, precipitously that melatonin endogenously just drops. And we're talking the pineal generated melatonin. So what sets our circadian biology? So by the time we're in our mid-50s, we're pretty much bottomed out. So when people have concerns like, oh, if I take supplemental melatonin, am I not changing and reducing my endogenous production? What I want to say back to them is that by the time you're in your mid-50s, you have negligible endogenous production of melatonin. And it continues to decrease into the 60s and the later decades. And some might say, is it connected in any way to the escalation of chronic diseases and increased risk for things like dementia, neurodegenerative issues, gastrointestinal issues. For some of the conditions, there's some mixed data, but for others, it's a little bit more clear cut. Like in your case, when you took it, when you had COVID, I would say that the two areas that stand out for me in terms of research would be central nervous system activity, looking at cognition, brain health, nerve health, And then also looking at immune health, there's copious research on immune benefits just overall because it's anti-inflammatory, it's a very potent antioxidant. And what Mm. makes it really cool is an antioxidant because for most people, they think, oh, antioxidant, that's so 1990s. (laughs) But actually, it's very relevant with melatonin because even the metabolites of melatonin 
are antioxidant in nature. So they scavenge free radicals. So one molecule of melatonin can scavenge up to 10 reactive oxygen species. So it loves fat, it loves water. So it's amphiphilic. So it has this flexing nature of being in fat and in water, which makes it even more potent in the way that it can circulate throughout the body. Whereas something like vitamin C can quench two free radicals, one to two free radicals. Dr. Ryder was saying how even melatonin is five times more potent than glutathione. He and I had that discussion. When I met him in November, I told him melatonin is my favorite antioxidant, more so than glutathione. And I even, when I teach, I tell people that if I had to choose, even though both are very important for different reasons, melatonin is my favorite. And I'll joke, I'll say, fight me. And I said this to Dr. Ryder. I said, melatonin is my favorite antioxidant. I have much more than glutathione. He was like, I agree, of course, absolutely. And I tell people, I said, like those Russian dolls where you take out the off the big doll and there's a little doll. And I say that when I explain melatonin metabolites, like melatonin like rawr, gets the reactive oxygen species and then poof, it changes into the next doll down and then that gets a reactive oxygen species and that changes to the next doll down. And like all of a sudden, 10 dolls later, it's acquired quite a number of bad things in the body. And how amazing is that? Yeah, that's a great metaphor. And actually what we know is that melatonin can stimulate glutathione production. True. We'll talk about that release at night, the darkness aspect, and why 2 to 4 a.m. is such an important window and where glutathione and melatonin actually rear their head and come out and do the work of rejuvenation. Which actually a lot of people, of course, wake up between 2 and 4 in the morning. It's a super common for a variety of reasons, but then they miss out on that peak of those. I have a theory about why that happens. I've been thinking a lot about this because if you look at some of the antioxidant enzymes, they peak at that 2 a.m. And we also know that melatonin, this is one of its other functions, that it seems to be implicated in the glymphatic fluid flux. In other words, it's helping the brain to detoxify at night. So if the brain is doing a majority of that activity between 2 and 4 a.m., I would think, there's no science to support this, but I would think that somebody that awakens during that time might need to pay some particular attention to their detoxification pathways, that there may be a lot of activity. We also know that the liver is one of the central hubs of oscillation genes related to the whole clock system. So melatonin produced from the pineal gland is going systemically and then basically communicating at the cellular level with clock genes and then getting all of those genes, those cells in rhythm. And if the liver is one of the main hubs, and in traditional Chinese medicine, I'm married to an acupuncturist, so I would know this, liver time is between 1 and 3 a.m. So isn't that interesting that there was that observation in traditional medicine that there's a lot of liver activity, and we also know that melatonin, glutathione, superoxide, dismutase, catalase, they're all peaking at that same time. And truly that the, the pinnacle of darkness. And that's why melatonin has been referred to as a darkness hormone. And why don't we go into there? How do you even make melatonin? Because darkness is critical for one of the steps. And we as humans screw it up all the time. 
We do. (laughs) (laughs) Having artificial light at night has made us very productive as a species. And no doubt we all enjoy having some electricity, but it has been detrimental from the aspect of sleep and also melatonin production. So with melatonin, melatonin is signaled actually through the eye. So we've been talking about the pineal gland, but how does the pineal gland get the information? There are very specific cells cell types in the retina that are filled with melanopsin. And that melanopsin, that is a pigment and a sensor for blue light. And when the body is taking in that blue light through the eyes, then that would stop melatonin production. One of the things about, we just think of the early morning hours. So having that exposure to bright morning light is also so important for setting our melatonin rhythm at night. Cortisol, testosterone, they're peaking in the morning. All of these hormones are very much interconnected in this web. So having that initial exposure is important for melatonin production at night. As the day goes on and it becomes dimmer and dimmer, we get what's called dim light melatonin onset. So the levels of melatonin start to rise with the decrease in luminosity or the measure of light is actually called lux. So there are all kinds of light recommendations as far as how much lux, how much light should you be exposed to stay within that natural rhythm. So as it becomes dimmer and darker at night, our melatonin goes up, our core body temperature comes down, and we get the signal. We even feel that intuitively. I don't know about for you, but my bedtime is between 9 and 10, and I naturally just start to feel chilled within that time frame. And I start thinking, that's my melatonin kicking in. It's bringing my core body temperature down, letting me know and signaling that it's time for sleep. So it has this, one of its functions, as I mentioned, the chronobiotic, but it's also a hypnotic. It is generating a bit of that sleepiness, that feeling of being tired. And that's just the natural rhythm. Now for people with light eyes, so you have light eyes, I have light eyes, we're even more prone to the effects of melatonin suppression at night if we're exposed to bright light. So our eyes are just, or you can wear like me, blue light blocking glasses, which I have different ones. During the day, I wear a modest light type of, it shields some of the light, but as it becomes darker, then I start to wear other types that bring out more of the red and take out more of the blue. So there are some hacks. Looking at our light and dark exposure is very key for looking at our melatonin levels. And I definitely noticed it through the pandemic. I had a lot of people that would struggle with their sleep. Mm -hmm. However, they were proudly posting that they were up not having to go to work on Netflix, watching crime documentaries, all the big popular shows that became up over the pandemic. And none of them were very relaxing. A lot of them were very, again, true crime type documentaries. And I was like, first of all, you're on your phone or your tablet or your TV and you're up late at night because you probably don't have to work or you suddenly get to work from home, which is a new thing. And you're completely screwing up your melatonin. What are you doing? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And all of those things count. Exactly what you said. Devices, computers, phones, Kindle, but even the lighting in our homes. So just to naturally turn down the dial to go into that more of a dim mode would be much better. But even going to the gym at night, being exposed to that artificial light there, it all adds up. In fact, there was one study that showed that exposure just to even minutes of bright light 
led to a, again, it depends on your eye color and so many other things, but 50 to 80% suppression of melatonin. I was going to say, and how many people turn the bathroom light on when they get up in the middle of the night? I was just going to say that. (laughs) I was actually having a conversation with Dr. Terry Walls about that very thing. And she's, what about people that have instability with walking? Or she was, we were talking about people with MS or other kinds of conditions. And yes, I think having a very dim nightlight And actually measuring the lux within your sleeping room is a really good thing to do. So there's an app that I use. It's called Light Meter. And all I do is I take my phone and I use the camera light at eye level and I can see what the lux reading is on the other side. So it'll give me a number. So if I I go outside right now and it's like noontime, so the sun is high, we're talking probably like 20,000 lux, just Mm -hmm. to give you a sense. And one lux is equal to a candle flame about three feet away. So 20,000 lux. I was just at the beach and I just brought out my lux meter just to check it. And it was insane. It was like 65,000 or something like that. But when we're indoors, and especially when we don't have a window in front of us, it could be like 200, 200 lux. So the issue is that we're not getting enough brightness during the day. And then we have over abundance of this light at night, which is defying the natural rhythm where we have this high intensity light and then we decrease, whereas we're doing just the opposite. We're flip-flopping our light and dark. And in fact, as part of putting together this article, we began this discussion within the medical team about darkness deficiency, that maybe what people have We could say melatonin deficiency, but we can start by saying, let's first correct for lifestyle. We may have darkness deficiency, which is why we may have endogenous production of melatonin at an all-time low. So starting there, I think, is really key. Getting enough darkness, looking at sleep hygiene, some of the basic things. But it's not just for sleep. It's just for our circadian rhythm overall. Yeah. And it's not sexy. And it's not a pill. Melatonin can be a pill, which we will talk about. But people will say, what I need for my sleep. Give me something for my sleep. Knowing full well, they're in bright light at night, just as you said. They are inside all day long, let's say working. So a lot of artificial inside light, not getting out very much. They have night lights or they're not sleeping in darkness. And then they, of course, can't sleep and want to know what pill. Does chamomile help? I'm like, I know it's not sexy, but let's work on your darkness first and go from there. I totally agree with you. And so many people are talking about circadian rhythm right now. In fact, some people would say, forget talking about the diet. If you can't get your light and the darkness, everything else is really tethered to that. We're people that are run by the sun, we're run by the moon. I stumbled across even an article that was showing that melatonin levels vary with the moon cycle which I thought was really interesting. So all of these things are so important. And I think it just gets us back to nature. So looking at our artificial darkness at an artificial light, looking at the vitamin D and melatonin relationship, because another thing that came out during the pandemic was, again, the whole visibility into vitamin D, the importance of that. But then also, as we were doing this article, what I realized is that there is an interrelationship of vitamin D and melatonin. So there was one particular study in which, first of all, they look alike in the way of their functions, vitamin D being the signaler of light and melatonin being the signaler of darkness. They're kind of a brother and sister yin and yang. There has also been work looking at how people who are vitamin D deficient or insufficient also tend to have changes in melatonin. And when people correct for vitamin D, they actually help to correct 
for their melatonin levels. So that is one study in particular. Yeah. But in general, I think it's interesting because one of the reasons why people fear melatonin is because they think, oh, it's a hormone. Well, vitamin D is it acts like a hormone. There's a receptor that has to bind to vitamin D in order to engage in that, the DNA expression of various proteins. So it's very similar with melatonin. In a lot of countries, melatonin is prescription only. I'm sure you found as you have lectured all over the world, I always have to ask because a lot of times I'm discussing reproductive hormones or I'm discussing cortisol and circadian rhythm. Of course, melatonin falls into both. And so I will say... Hey, in the U.S., you can buy it literally anywhere. 7-Eleven, the airport, at grocery store, you can get it everywhere. Amazon, where can you get it here? And most of the time they go, oh, no, it's a hormone. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. I don't know why that is, especially in light of the science, which we're looking at two to three decades worth of more and more research to suggest that it's more than just for sleep. It's very potent in its anti-inflammatory, antioxidant. We're now seeing more on liquid phase separation, which you alluded to with viral replication, brain detoxification at night. So I just don't understand. And perhaps it's even a sourcing issue because as I got into the weeds on supplemental sources of melatonin, there's a lot in the way of quality to consider. So depending on what people are putting out, and I often wonder, are some of the negative side effects that people talk about like having vivid dreams, although I don't know if that's a negative side effect per se, liver, if we look at traditional Chinese medicine and liver health, there's also that dreaming time at that time that might be just more at the surface. It could also be related to the synthetic agents that might be in that melatonin. So what are people actually reacting to? Or is melatonin there in combination with other things that are modifying its metabolism? So a lot of things, but I feel that it really is, it's too bad. It's a disadvantage not to have melatonin supplements available in other countries because of all of its many uses. I call it the ultimate multitasker. And I think if more people just knew of these different functions, then they would see its use, again, beyond sleep. But I think that the fact that children and its whole connection to gummies and chewables, this has given it a little bit of a negative reputation. And this is one area where I don't think that melatonin supplements should be used unless there's a good reason. Does that child have ADHD, autism? Are there certain indications for which that melatonin supplement would be indicated? But otherwise, the highest levels of melatonin that you're ever going to see in your life are when you're a child. So I just don't see a reason to give children these gummies, these chewables. And perhaps that's where a lot of the issue has come in. Let's actually talk about supplementation. Even if you're listening to this in a country where it is prescription, the most you're ever going to make is a child, but we see it at all different doses. We see it at 0.3135. Of course, in certain chronic disease, cancer, we'll see it at 10, 20, these really big doses. Can you talk about, one, actually, can you talk about how much do we make as humans and then why is there so much variation in supplementation out there? Yes. On a daily basis, depending on where we are in the lifespan, we make anywhere from 0.1 to 0.9 milligrams in a day. So it's pretty small relative to some of the doses that people are taking. So that 
if we look over the lifespan and look at middle age, we're probably making about 0.3 milligrams. And that 0.3 number also harkens back to a study that was published in the early 2000s by Dr. Wortman's group, in which they tested a very low dose, a middle dose, and a higher dose. They looked at different sleep measures, and they found that 0.3 milligrams was the best dose. And I've seen the 0.3, as well as lower doses like that, also recommended by different opinion leader organizations. In fact, I think that just recently there was a published study looking at recommendations for older individuals, and they were talking about that 0.3 to 0.5 milligram range. So that to me is physiologic. That is just, imagine that you just want to fill the gap of what you're not making throughout your adult life. Now, when it comes to something like jet lag, where you actually need to pull on the more of the hypnotic effect of melatonin rather than the chronobiotic effect, then we need a little bit more, but yet it's acute. So when it comes to jet lag, people have used anywhere between three to six milligrams. So some people like to use melatonin at low dose before they start their travel, especially if they're going eastward. And then when they're actually at their location, they would take it at the time of sleep about 40 to 60 minutes before they go to sleep in that location. And then to take it for about three to four days thereafter or until sleep has normalized. So it can cut down some of the adjustment aspect of travel. So I like the idea of looking at the chronobiotic effect before one travels, shifting your sleep a little bit every day before you travel for about three to four days, bookending both ends, right? So the lower dose before and then the higher dose when you're actually there when you do want that sleepy feel. So yeah, when I hear people say that they're taking double-digit amounts of melatonin, I often think, why? (laughs) Because is there a lot of data to support taking these higher doses? There is in certain cases. Let me give you one case specifically. Dr. Paolo Lossoni, who is in Italy and does a lot of work with cancer, he uses higher doses of melatonin supplementally when people are going through chemotherapy. So it's supposed to protect the healthy cells and it's supposed to make the chemotherapy work better. So yes, there have been indications where higher amounts have been used, like 20 to 50 milligrams in acute situations where there is a particular type of therapeutic intervention with oversight by some kind of medical professional. But then you get other people, and I've got to say, Carrie, other people where they tell me, either on a podcast or separately, hey, I've been taking uh, 50 to 80 milligrams. And I just say, how is that working for you? How do you know it's working? What are you trying to do with that amount? To me, it's like the Goldilocks principle. Not too little, not too much, just the right amount. And I do think that for certain people, they have to tweak that amount of melatonin. Starting at the lower dose, the 0.3 milligrams, especially if they're in middle age, I call that the replenishment dose. And then if you're needing a more therapeutic dose or you need to call upon melatonin for something else, again, to have a more hard-hitting effect in the way of establishing sleep, then yes, having that higher dose, I think, can be good. With COVID, there have been higher amounts that have been recommended. So again, that would be potentially advocated. And also, there's some research now going on for long-haul COVID Mm -hmm. and taking melatonin. It's just looking at it more acutely versus more chronic use. 
I think from a dose perspective, starting again with something low, like under one milligram and going from there. Now, everybody has different personalized kinetics as it relates to the metabolism of melatonin. Some people say, oh, it didn't work for me, or it gave me that feeling of grogginess, or I woke up feeling like I had a hangover. And that in part can be due to a number of things. It can be due to the dose. It can be due to the timing. It can be due to the kinetics. It can be due to the actual supplement. There was one paper published in 2018 that essentially identified that there were 13 different potential contaminants in synthetically produced melatonin. What had happened was when, if we look at the back in 1958, when melatonin was isolated from the pineal gland, many supplements that had come out of that use the pineal gland-derived melatonin. But then there were issues with prions and viral infections and just the sheer number of animals that you would need in order to extract that amount of melatonin. It just wasn't practical. So then what happened was that there was a lot of synthetic production. And so people have concerns about it. It's really interesting to me because I just diving into the literature, seeing that there are issues with contaminants, there are issues with chemical pollution. And I've actually gone into some of the patents in which you can see the process by which melatonin is created. Many times the starter compounds are petrochemicals oh. of various types. Sometimes what you'll see too, and this is, I've been in the supplement world for a long time. So we know some of the hacks and some of the marketing workarounds. So you might see a term like plant-based melatonin, which could mean, doesn't mean all that much, but it could mean that it's derived initially from corn or soy and then has the same chemical process that it's subjected to. But the starter compound might be derived from something that is related to cornstarch or something of that nature. Yeah, as you and I were talking about, one of the forms of melatonin that I support and I use personally is derived from rice, chlorella, and alfalfa. It's actually green. You can see it in the capsule. There are no excipients, no fillers. It is in a blister pack because what we know about melatonin is it can break down in light and air. Oxygen can lead to the degradation. When you look at herbatonin, which is the commercial name of the melatonin that I use, it's green and it comes in that 0.3 milligram and also the three milligram dose. People can adjust that accordingly. I know when I was going through some of my perimenopausal issues, I did double up on my melatonin because I was feeling that, first of all, I was warm at night and I know that melatonin is regulating core body temperature, which in part is one of the reasons why people can't stay asleep. They get hot, they get warm, especially perimenopausal women, they're getting hot flashes. So this is where I see application of taking something like herbatonin for these women going through this change of life. And what I like too about herbatonin is that it contains all these different phytonutrients. So it contains essential fatty acids, it contains amino acids, and it's derived from the plants directly. So Mm -hmm. it even has lutein and zeaxanthin, which are important for embedding into the macula and helping to protect us from that exposure to artificial blue light. Which everyone's getting. (laughs) Yes, of course. And so that's why having plants in the diet, I think, are important because they are embedding into certain places of the body in order to functionally have an impact. So yes, the herbatonin has been compared with synthetic melatonin side by side just to look at its anti-inflammatory effects, its antioxidant effects, and it outperforms all of them. Just even with inflammation, which I think is the big one. 
what was seen when it, this was a, a study that was published in Molecules 2021. It was published by a Polish group, which did take the erbotonin and compared it alongside synthetic melatonin. And what they found was that there was a 646% greater anti-inflammatory action with the erbotonin versus the synthetic melatonin. Wow. It's not that the melatonin was different, but it's that erbotonin has other things in it that are adjunctive and supportive of that whole process of reducing inflammation. Most likely the phytonutrients, the antioxidant potential, which we know is so much greater than even synthetic melatonin. So what we're doing with erbotonin is actually amplifying the effects that melatonin already has. Yeah. We already know it's anti-inflammatory. We already know it's an antioxidant. We know that it quenches these reactive oxygen species and is a mitochondrial regulator. But now we're amplifying those effects many folds because we've got other things in there. So I think that's what makes it really unique. It's truly a plant melatonin. It's not plant-based. It is a plant melatonin with all of the other plant cell matrix materials. <laughs> of course, that really makes me excited. And I want to go back to you saying, having using it with through perimenopause. Yeah. These are, everything you just said are key issues that get amplified for the worse, unfortunately through perimenopause, right? Our inflammation tends to go up. Our hormones are wild all over the place through perimenopause. Eventually they drop down in menopause. But in fact, I was just texting two colleagues of mine right before we got on this call and we're all in perimenopause, all discussing despite, and I think a lot of listeners can relate, despite diet, exercise, stress, sleep, really pretty good. I'm not saying 10 out of 10, but like really pretty key and uh, still experiencing symptoms just because of the nature of the transition internally for perimenopause and then everything we have to deal with externally that's just become amplified over the last year to several years. And so sleep itself, just sleep proper being such a key part of healing, repair, detoxification, and then that melatonin that comes with it out of the pineal gland, our circadian rhythm, chronobiology, the bonuses of melatonin when it comes to inflammation and reactive oxygen species and our mitochondria. I mean, it just becomes this massive snowball effect. And they've done research, as you know, on what happens to melatonin as women transition into menopause. It's not good. Not only is she going <laughs> through perimenopause and losing her estrogen and progesterone, but now she's losing her melatonin. She might be losing some testosterone. It's like all pauses are just, for some of us, like it's just leading us to this grinding halt in our yeah. lives. And I think that, Carrie, that like a certain part of pausing in life is good because it causes the reflection. And there's this book that James, who you and I both know, yeah. he loves this book called The Heroine's Journey by Maureen Murdoch. And one of the things that he had mentioned, and I think it's really beautiful that as a man, he had this insight talking about how if we are constantly suppressing our emotions or that ability to go through the transition without the fullness of that journey, and whether it takes journaling, getting more creative, hanging out with your women friends or male friends, whoever, it just causes us to go into this mode of reflection. It's all things yin. And that's how I see melatonin is it really brings us back into connection with more of our yin-like nature, being in the dark going yeah. through detoxification. To me, cortisol and testosterone, adrenaline, these are like the get up and go hormones. And we've done a lot of that in our lives as women. And then as we move into the perimenopause, it's like now there's a wake up of like, now things start to come down. 
And we have to, melatonin is that rest and rejuvenation hormone. That's what we need in order, I think, to help us to fill those gaps that we might have at the surface now as we go through that transition. Quite honestly, just from me to you, I was a little bit surprised because I have been doing so much in the way of my physical activity. Gosh, my diet is always like super pristine. I do. It was really funny because even on social media this morning, I had somebody say, oh my gosh, you're doing all these things like organic pastured wild caught fish, all of these things. So I never thought that I would be a woman that would get hot flashes. Until you got them. I got them. I got them. I had these vasomotor symptoms that were just raging and impacting my sleep. And I am just somebody who sleeps like a baby. So for me, I had to shift. I had to shift in terms of what I was doing with a number of things. I had to increase my detoxification support. And one of the things that I also take is feminescence, which Mm. is rich in glucosinolates. It's rich in a lot of these detoxifying aspects of hormones. Sometimes it's not the hormone itself. It's like how our body is changing it, as as all of your listeners know. Having the feminescence, having the herbatonin, I had to shift things and I needed to take more herbatonin. That was really important. And I also, quite honestly, I just had to start changing my routine. I was used to working like 12 to 14 hours and working late into the night, like not a big deal. And I needed to curtail that. I needed to say, okay, if I am really going to be on the computer past 6 p.m. when it's getting dark, then I need to put on my blue light blocking glasses. I need to be more diligent. But yeah, sometimes all the things that we do that seem to be right, we're still going to have some symptoms. It's just letting us know (laughs) that we're still vulnerable and we can use that as fodder for processing. We are still human. We're still human. And I always love it because for me, creativity has always been really key for helping me on my own heroine's journey. I'm somebody that has had endometriosis. I had a hydrocell pinks on my left side. I had a lot of left side body complaints, a lot of issues with my reproductive system. So we could say we have a lot of issues or it's like the biggest messenger. Where does it take us? So I think now just really recalibrating and with some of these compounds that we find in plants, We find that they help the plant to override, to become more resilient, to act as even a growth factor. I know that melatonin in plants stimulates the production of things like glucosinolates, which is interesting. So melatonin is even sprayed on certain crops in order to help them to better grow. That was also something I found to be quite interesting. So overall, we constantly have to recalibrate. We have to just look at our hormone journey and see where we are at that level of looking at these different compounds and how can plants come in and fill that gap or some of their compounds. Which actually, I do get this question. I just have just a few more questions before we wrap this up because I know people are burning with that. One, can I eat foods historically thought to have a lot of melatonin and get the same effect? For example, dark cherries, tart cherries. I hear that a lot. I eat tart cherries before bed to help with melatonin. How much truth is that to the amount of melatonin in some of these foods? So I was really interested in answering that question, especially with my background in nutrition, right? So when we were writing that article, I went into the literature and I cherry-picked studies. (laughs) I looked for studies in which they measure the amount of melatonin in foods. I had to find a study on cherries. I had to find a study on pistachios. I had to find a study on, typically you find melatonin in seeds, fruits, and nuts. So I basically made a list of these foods and then I found the actual picogram per gram amount and then did the rough 
calculation as to, okay, if you were just aiming for that modest amount of 0.3 milligrams, like filling the potholes with midlife, how much would you need? When I cranked the numbers, at least for cherries, I got to something like over 1,500 cherries, tart cherries, would give you that 0.3 milligrams. 1,500? Yes, 1,500 or it could have even been more. It could have been like close to 2000. It's actually all in that article that we published, which is entitled, Is Melatonin the Next Vitamin D? So I put in the list of foods and common amounts and then did that calculation. Pistachios is another one where typically we'll go on social media and you'll see that, oh, wow, pistachios contain melatonin. They do contain melatonin but not appreciable amounts of melatonin. And similarly, you'd have to have thousands of pistachios in order to get a physiological dose. And not only that, but plants vary. They vary based on where they are, what kinds of environmental factors that they've been exposed to. It's never like standardized just to melatonin. You can't say that this tart cherry that I get every September has this amount of melatonin. You don't know. And also you have to consider what else is in those foods. Do you want all of those foods coming in right before bedtime? I think that I would never discourage food. And there is one study that comes to my mind in terms of cherries helping with insomnia. And one of the things that I think is responsible for that is not the melatonin in the cherries, but because cherries are really high in polyphenols. Polyphenols, as we are now seeing in the literature, are also helping to establish healthy circadian rhythm, different from melatonin. And in fact, I think that it's an interesting combo to be thinking about polyphenols in the diet, because we see that some of the beautiful studies that have been done feeding animals in more of a seasonal rhythm and seeing different metabolic effects, depending on when you fed that food and when that food was actually collected from the environment, whether or not it was in or out of season. So I think that cherries have merit, no doubt. I don't think a lot of cherries before bedtime, but I think that they have merit because of their polyphenol content, which can be important as antioxidants, gut agents, but not as a replacement for melatonin per se, just because of the amounts being so minute. Oh, I'm so glad I asked you because that does come up all the time. And understandable if you're just skimming a study and not realize the math conversion that needs to go into that, but you just see pistachios have melatonin, tart cherries have melatonin. And one of the studies on pistachios had actually come from, I believe it was Iran, which is a country that has pistachios as one of its major commodities. Just looking at, there was some debunking of their numbers, their original projections, and then there was some re- estimations and also how these things, the methods that are used in the studies, sometimes they vary, Mm. whether they're using a gas chromatograph, different types of measurements, and you can get a wide range. So it's just difficult, number one, to standardize. Methods can be different, the amount that you have to take in. And again, I would never discourage people eating these plant foods that are enriched in a number of different phytonutrients, but I wouldn't be thinking about them for melatonin. All right, last question. This is the burning question that everybody freaks out about. Dr. Deanna Minnick, if I take melatonin, I won't make my own. Is that true? (laughs) (laughs) The origin of that question would come from the negative feedback loop. So if we start taking it, does it stop the pineal gland? So there have actually been studies that set out to answer that question prospectively and actually set up studies to look at people taking melatonin and then looking at their body's ability to produce melatonin. And 
I believe there were about four different published studies, and we've actually put those again into that paper. And what they found was that there was no impact on endogenous melatonin production. I know that that is sometimes like an aha, but I think it's because melatonin is more than a hormone. It flexes. It's unique. It is not just a hormone. In fact, I would not even put it classically in the hormone bucket. So it's not going to play like the other hormones. You tell me, are there hormones that are amphiphilic antioxidants? Are they in and of their own right? Do they have the changes on viral replication? Do they have the mitochondrial regulating impact? Are they found in all of these different tissues? So I think melatonin is just, we have coined it as a hormone. And in some respects, it does act as a hormone, especially through the pineal gland, but it doesn't quite act in that same way of how other hormones may act. It's a little bit different. I love it. I'm so glad. I'm so glad you just straight up said it. When I was at the conference last November and met Dr. Ryder on stage, somebody said, asked him the same question. And he, just like you, he was like, no, there is not a feedback loop. And I thought half the audience was about to lose their mind because... (laughs) I know they'd educated about it. I know they'd posted on social. I know I was looking around the room like, I told you so. <laughs> and I would say, keep in mind that remember, endogenous production is bottomed out when you're 50 and on. So what are we afraid of? If yeah. we're 60 and we're taking this melatonin, we're not producing any anyway. Yeah. So yeah. I would be thinking about that. Now, kids in the pre-puberty stage, I would have concerns about high levels of melatonin. I don't know what implications that would have for going through puberty. And I would want to be thinking about receptor activity and all of that. And that's why, again, that there are certain populations for which people need to be a little bit more cautious about its use and have that oversight. And it does interact with a number of different pharmaceuticals. So anti-inflammatories, all of the activities that melatonin has, any drug that's doing that, obviously there could be some interaction. And that makes sense. Absolutely. Where can people find you? Especially where can people learn more about Herbitonin, which you've been talking about, but both? Because you are a wealth of knowledge. I called you the queen earlier. I have been reading your published papers for years, follow you on social media. She's also a prolific painter for everyone who's listening. She's quite creative. Where can other people get sponge off of everything that comes out of you and learn about Herbitonin? Oh, thank you, Carrie. You're definitely... You're the leader in that field. And so you can find more information about Herbitonin through the symphonynaturalhealthpro.com site. So there's symphonynaturalhealth.com. There's also, for health professionals, the symphonynaturalhealthpro.com. So you can learn much more about Herbitonin there. In fact, a lot of blogs. One of the things that clinicians might like is, so we have a medical team with Dr. Tori Hudson, Dr. Mona Fahoum, Dr. Catherine Darley, Dr. Kim Ross. We've got a number of people on our medical team. So we do have a medical team there to ask and answer questions, just go back and forth with you on client cases. We also have a toolkit. So we put together a darkness deficiency questionnaire, which is nice to quantify darkness deficiency, much like you would a nutrient deficiency. We also have a checklist. How can you tell that you might be insufficient or deficient in melatonin? So that's looking at the home environment. That's looking at certain symptoms. That's looking at certain health conditions. There's also some discussion on there about testing. 
So definitely go there and learn more. I'm the chief science officer for Symphony Natural Health. So it's really a joy to work with a number of the products. And I've just been loving learning about melatonin. So that's where you can learn about us at that site. And just me in general, I'm DeannaMinnick.com. And I'm also like you on Instagram and Facebook and all of those social media sites. Amazing. Thank you so much for being on today. And I encourage everyone to follow both Symphony Natural Health and Dr. Deanna, because like I said, both are a wealth of information. Even prior to the Herbitonin, as you mentioned James earlier, I met him years ago for the Feminescence product, the maca product, because maca and of course female hormones and transitioning into perimenopause and menopause is such a huge issue. And when I found their product and all the research and everything, I thought, oh, this is a gold mine. This is so helpful. And then to learn even more with their Herbitonin product has just been really helpful overall. And I'm super excited that you're there now and able to come on the podcast and educate. So again, just thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I have one quick favor to ask before you go. If you love today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? My whole goal is education. So positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing. I so appreciate it. And I'll catch you on the next episode.